hello friends. This is an Apple Music interview version of the world-famous Emo Dad podcast. What does this mean? No music. Why? Apple doesn't let us play songs. Does it sound a bit weird when we introduce a song and nothing happens? Nah. But, you know, you still get the conversation and all the good times. For the full version, switch on over to Spotify and search Emo Dad. Thanks and enjoy the episode. I'm, I'm super excited by everything I can see in your background, including the skeleton. Oh, the skeleton. <laughs> that's, that's, a wall, that's a wall of guitar pedals. Amazing. That's the skeleton. This is my studio. So I've got like a pile of amps. Wicked. Duff. Knobs. Many knobs. knobs. <laughs> uh, what have I got over here? Got some piano and... Oh, it's nice. a massive wall of synthesizers. Awesome. <laughs> Brilliant. Love yeah. it. Wasn't expecting to get a studio tour. That was a nice little bonus. Yeah. Oh, it's fun <laughs> in here. I rebuilt this place in lockdown one when there was nothing else to do. So it's still relatively new and exciting. Oh, nice. Okay. Nice. <laughs> Hello friends and welcome back to another episode of Emo Dad Podcast. My name is James. My name is Matt. And today we're super excited to have 100 Reasons guitarist and super producer Larry Hibbert with us. Let's start with Silver by 100 Reasons. Larry Hibbert, thank you so much for joining us on Emo Dad Podcast. It's a pleasure, thank you for having me. You've uh, just uh, before we started, you gave us a nice little tour around your studio, which was was fun. A nice bonus for us. It's looking uh, looking very nice. Yeah, it's cool in here. Um, it's it's a little place. I'm just on Brixton Hill. Um, small studio, uh, but I rebuilt it in lockdown one when there was nothing else to do. Um, so yeah, it's really cool. I've been I've been sort of sat I've been sat in here before I rebuilt it when it was a little bit rubbish. Um, sort of dreaming up what this room would be like ideally so it felt good to actually be able to do it and do a proper job of it and um yeah it's been great fun working in here since then nice yeah it looks awesome um but we'll uh, we'll chat about that a bit later so um yep. we'd like to go right back to um well to what i believe is the start but you might tell me otherwise um yep. and first of all i want to really kind of fanboy for a moment about jetpack okay. that's an, <laughs> a rare thing <laughs> <laughs> I was mad about Jetpack back in the day. I thought you guys were brilliant. Awesome. Well, there's one of you, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I, but I have to be honest. Somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I, how long were you guys together as a band? Uh, that's a complicated question. I don't know, a year or two? Probably yeah. not very long. You did a, a couple of tours. I think you, you went out with A, did you? Yeah, we went... <laughs> We went, on, we went on tour with A. We kind of unofficially went on tour with A. Um, <laughs> like me, we, we, we were managed by, um, well, at the time there were a couple called Mark and Jane. And we used to like, we used to go and watch A gigs quite a lot and Cable, but I don't remember I called Cable. Oh, like yeah. We used yeah. To, 
we used to drive out of the country watching AIM, watching cable. Um, and we got to know them and they were both managed by a guy called Tank who actually ended up managing 100 Reasons along with Mark and Jane. Um, so we sort of knew that crew a little bit. And Jason from A had produced the first Jetpack 7-inch ah, through okay. the election. Um, and yeah, they were going on tour and we really wanted to go on tour with them, but we didn't have an agent or anything like that, or anything that you need to actually get properly put on a tour with a band that's signed to a left record label. So they were just like, well, we can't actually officially put you on the tour, but if you just turn up and say that you're first on, we'll like back you up. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you can play that way. So that's basically what we did. We just turned on and be like, yeah, we're the first on band. Sorry, you don't need to pay us. Um, and then most of the promoters were just like, yeah, whatever, just play. <laughs> nice. I love it. I love the uh, just sneaking on shows. And um, I uh, I found an old Splatch poster online. Do you remember the Splatch gigs? I did. Barney Jeevens. Yeah, that's thing, it. Right? Was that him? Yeah. Did he do yeah. Splatch? I don't know. Yeah, that's right. You played with um, uh, you might may or not may or may not remember. Um, you played with Redwood and Inertia in Woking in 1998. <laughs> rings, bells. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, we won't dwell on that, but I just wanted to mention that because uh, yeah, I thought you guys were were brilliant. Um, right, but we will you. we'll move on to uh, the the band that most people know you for, um, Hundred Reasons. Mm. Um, so. So I was keen to kind of find out what happened. Um, were Jetpack finished when you joined 100 Reasons or um, did you leave Jetpack to do 100 Reasons? How did that all work out? I think Jetpack was all done by then and there wasn't any overlap. In fact, I'm pretty sure there was and any overlap. So yeah, I was not in a band. Um, I think I was actually like, look, I was looking for a band. I think I can't remember, like I'd done like a few auditions with, not auditions I just like jammed with a few drummers and was trying to get something together and like it nothing was really happening I think I I was even gave out flyers at some gigs in London like the borderline maybe even like Fugazi played at the Rex I don't remember that place in Stratford like that's back when Stratford was proper terrifying they played out there because you know they always played weird places because they didn't want to charge any money for tickets um so I think I was giving out flyers there like looking for a band <laughs> You know, um, none of that was really happening. Uh, so, yeah, I was definitely not in a band when 100 Reasons started. Uh, but they were, the rest of 100 Reasons were called, we were in a band called Floor, yep. who, like, Jetpack had played with and, you know, done all those, all those same gigs on that circuit you just mentioned. Um, and so, yeah, and they, they had a bass player who left or was kicked out, I can't remember which, and then... The Andy who's on guitar then moved to bass and I joined on guitar. And that's when okay. it came Right, yeah. I remember Floor as well. I should probably mention, um, so both myself and James are from Guildford. So we were kind okay. of you local. Dealing with the whole thing. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. I'm, um, I'm, not, I'm not actually from Guildford. I'm the one that's not from down that way. I was <laughs> the, the outsider. Yeah, <laughs> I was the outsider. And so when you joined um, 100 Reasons, uh, and they, they were originally together as Floor. Was it like, uh, was it intentionally like, right, this is going to be a new band from Floor, uh, a new direction? How, how, was, how were those conversations? It, that was the conversation, I believe, that it was going to be a new thing with new songs. There was a little bit of crossover of songs that like we did 
I was reminded of this the other day because someone posted it on Facebook, you know, memory from nine million years ago, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and we, like the first, the first hundred reasons stuff ever released was on our mates. Mate Ruben did a compilation CD called Commercial Breakdown. And that was two songs, one called Different and one called Wireframe. Different being a song that Floor had written and Wireframe was, I think actually maybe I think they were, they both were. Although we played them as 100 Reasons and recorded them as 100 Reasons. Um, so that was the only little crossover, but those songs didn't really like stay around, like they didn't stay in the set and they didn't feature or anything else. That was just like, because they were playing them and obviously we hadn't written any songs yet. So. Sure. And who were your biggest influences at the time? Um, I guess probably quite a lot of American stuff. Like, I mean, I was listening to a lot of stuff on Discord records, like Fugazi and Minor Threat and Blue Tip and lots of other stuff I can't, can't really remember right now. Um, and then also a lot of like hardcore and punk and then more, more commercial stuff at the time, like Helmet and things like that. So it's kind of all that sort of thing, which is all the heaviness. And then, but then also like quite a lot of like Britpop and like early British indie, like, you know, like Andy the Drummer was like a massive Ned's Atomic Dustman fan. And right. so a kind of mixture of, of lots of those things. Um, yeah, which kind of makes sense. Because <laughs> so, sure. what, what year would this have been? 2000, 99. Okay. Sure. Our, yeah. our first gig was Millennium Eve, so it was the, the few months leading up to that. Wow, where was that? That was in Exeter. That, wow. And so that time, because also like we, we were like kind of a Kingston-based band, I suppose. Um, and on that tour that Jetpack had done with A, the only promoter on that entire tour who gave us any food was <laughs> um, was was Pippa Rag at the Cavern in Exeter. Right. Um, which is a great little venue. So she she was like, oh, you know, her paper was, was really nice and was just like, oh, well, I have to feed you and gave us some chips. And <laughs> and because of that, we sort of remained lifelong friends. So then there's this little sort of exchange scheme opened up between Kingston bands and Exeter bands where, where Exeter bands would come up here and Kingston bands would go down there. Um, so that was how we ended up doing our first gig down there at their Millennium Eve party. Um, and we played there, and that was probably a place that we played more than anywhere else over over the years. Yeah, for sure. Um, it'd be really good to um, to play a song from uh, one of those influential bands that you mentioned. Is there any that, that spring to mind? No, but I'll find one. Hang on. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, played Great Cop by Fugazi. I mean, that's always a banger. Sure. Cool. Yeah. A forever banger. That's what that is. <laughs> Brilliant. So this is Fugazi. So the you released a couple of EPs and the band seemed to gain popularity pretty quickly. Would you say? Um, yeah. Did you did you did you feel like you were onto something special? Did it as a band? Did you think okay, this this could be something good? I think so. Yeah. Like I, I, it became like quickly quite apparent that things were happening that had not happened in any other band that any of us had ever been in. Mm. I.e. people were taking notice of us and talking about us and and we were getting 
more and more shows and yeah it's just it, it it's quite obvious that that something different was happening you know to the normal thing of being in a band which is doing stuff for years and no one giving a fuck um <laughs> or the, yeah, you matt you gave a fuck <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's the one person <laughs> um so yeah it definitely felt different and like you know within within four or five gigs we were doing like we we one of the first sort of biggest shows we did like one, one of our early shows we supported that band kitty at the garage which was a sold out garage it was like 600 people there's more people we'd ever played in front of um and then then we got we then we supported papa roach at brixton academy really early on and we played the kerrang lost weekend at london arena really early on like like and but by this time tank was Tank was the involved manager, so he managed A and Cable, and he also managed Reef, who was still doing stuff at that time. So he knew he was our sort of route directly into the music industry. And then all of a sudden, you know, we've got a booking agent who's still our pure, who remained our booking agent for the, the entire time. And then all of a sudden, we've got the managing director of Columbia coming to see us play. Do you know what okay. I mean? And, and they've right. and they've all heard these they've they've all heard these demos we've been doing and been like, oh yeah, I'm into that. Because they wouldn't necessarily like they'd hear loads of demos and wouldn't necessarily come and see it. So it was obvious that sure. there was. It was connecting with people. Um, yeah, I remember when when Rab became our agent, he came down to see us play. I think it was when we actually headlined the garage, or a half full garage, whenever that was, sort of six months in or something. And he came down and just came in the dressing room and went, I've got your support too at Idleworld. I'm your agent now. And we were nice. like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I like it. I like Excellent. it. Yeah, and that was the start of a beautiful relationship. <laughs> and that and that would have been the early Idlewild days, I guess, where they were kind of still crawling windows, around. Yeah, yeah. So they were yeah. they were pretty really, nuts really at the beginning. Really exciting Idlewild. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. they were they were crazy, weren't they? Um, yeah. So uh, obviously, you released uh, a few EPs. I'd quite like to uh, play a song from your first EP. Do you have any favourites from that one? Is that the one with Cerebra on it? It is, yeah. That's what Cerebra, well, play that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, Cerebra's the first song we ever had played on the radio. Marianne Hobbs played it on the radio. And I remember that moment, staying up and listening to it being played on the radio. That was a really weird thing. And that's that was a, definitely a moment where, where I knew that something um, unusual was happening with everything. You hear that? That was a big moment. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is Cerebra by 100 Reasons. And so... A bit of time went by and you won Best New Band at the Kerrang Awards. Did that feel like a kind of pivotal moment for the band? Yeah, it did. I guess these things probably seem more pivotal now looking back at it. It's weird. Like yeah. at the time, you're probably a bit more of a rabbit caught in headlights. And like, like when we won that award, you know, I was still working at a call centre in Kingston. In fact, I had to go oh, to work the day after that. And I went to work mm -hmm. with the Kerrang Award. And a monumental hang <laughs> at nine in the morning and put put the Kerrang award on top of my computer and then sat there talking about fax machines all day, whatever the hell I was doing. Um, so, you know, so it was kind of like, yeah, that's happening. But then also those things were definitely still wallowing in a fucking swamp of reality from us having, you know, working jobs and all the rest of it. Sure. So, but yeah, looking back on it, obviously that was just kind of crazy, you know. That must have been tough if you were working kind of day jobs and then probably, I assume, shooting off to shows in the evening and then getting pissed at the Krang Awards. You uh, you must have been pretty knackered. It was a hard <laughs> life. It was a hard life. Yeah, but, you know, we were also 20 or whatever, so yeah. we don't really need to sleep. 
when you're 20. But like we um we like that Idol World tour I mentioned that that was that was the first, that was the only full tour we did. No, it was not the only full tour. It was one of the full tours we did before we had a record deal. So we were all still working. So we'd leave work early, drive to do the gig, then drive back overnight, go straight back into work. And we'd do that with like the Sugar Mill in Lancaster, which is mm. like fucking miles away. So, you know, I remember getting home and getting in at like 5 a.m. and then going to work at 8 o'clock. And you just do that over and over again because you have to work and you also have to do the gigs. So you just do it and don't really have any other life. But I think that's that's just what bands that that do anything really, that's just what they're like and that's just what their attitude is. And if that attitude isn't there, then there's probably not much legs in it. Sure, <laughs> you know? sure. So at what yeah. point did you guys kind of go full time with the band, i.e. or walk away from your, your day jobs? Well, that was when we signed to Columbia Records. Okay. Which would have been... Uh, the R Center to the year 2000, I guess. Mm, that must or have been a good very, day. Or the very start of 2001, I can't remember, somewhere around then. It was a really good day. Um, and yeah, at that, at that point, we quit our jobs. I took a massive pay cut from my job at the call center. <laughs> so there's no fucking money in it. So, like, but you know, we were, it, it was cool because we were just getting, we were, we were getting paid to do music a bit very little to to make music and then at that point stuff was being paid for like the tours were being paid for we were having pds we could rent a van we could do all that sort of stuff and recordings were being paid for so i guess yeah we had less money but we we're also spending less money on japan um and we were signed to fucking sony which was kind of crazy at that mm -hmm. time you know um so yeah that's when we went full-time and that's when it just got, you know, just turned into every day doing something every day. Sure. It was about sure. band, which is great. Um, the, the, the kind of British music scene um, at that time was fr really thriving. Or maybe that's just nostalgia for me. I don't know. But um, who were your favorite bands? You mentioned A and Cable. Who were your favorite bands at the time that you liked to kind of hang out with or tour with or, or see live? Uh, well, I guess Headers for Heroes were our sort of closest buddies uh yeah. I st and i still see those guys all the time now you know um they're, they're still mates and um i don't think we had that with any other band there was, well there's some of the bands we met in new york like when we went to we did our first album in new york and when we were there we met we met like aerotype 11 and rival schools and you know a bunch of people like that and they they were really good friends of ours and also bands that we really like to listen to um so there were quite a few i can't remember anymore off the top of my head <laughs> but there were nice. some but yeah those, those bands were, were, were the ones that sort of became our friends or we saw the most and in fact the first the first headline tour we did after signing to columbia um which was the first tour where we started really filling rooms um we had hellish for heroes and aerotype 11 supporting us on that tour and i think that still ranks as the favorite tour i've ever done in my life really just because, yeah, just because of how new everything was. And like about halfway through the tour, suddenly everything started setting out. You know what I mean? It's oh, like, really? it start, yeah, yeah and it, start, it started being like, okay, this is starting to feel like we're in a proper band now. Yeah. Good times. Good times. Yeah. Um, so obviously, you guys had um, quite a few, 
UK chart singles, um, which led you to appear on Top of the Pops. <laughs> what was that like? Kind of rubbish. Like, we did it twice. <laughs> I wondered if you might say that. Not just me being deliberately facetious. Right. Like, we are. Uh, the first time like we insisted on playing live because we were just like you know we had such a rod up our ass about like wanting to be for Garzio and we're like we're not gonna fucking mind right so and they're and they're like then top of the pops are not interested in people playing live they're, it's not it's not it's like the opposite of Jules Holland like when you play Jules Holland everything in the production and makeup of Jules Holland is geared towards bands playing live down to the monitors they put in everything top of the pops, they just ain't even flying fuck about that right so they're just like it's all all the money spent on the cameras and the camera rehearsals and it's just like oh, they'll just sort of vaguely point a mic at you so obviously it sounded horrific and in hindsight <laughs> we probably just should have mind but you know at that time it was like you know you still got your ideals haven't you know so like, cool. um so yeah it was kind of it was it's the kind of thing that was, it's like better to say you've done it than the actual reality of doing it. It was kind of stressful and okay. probably not na natural home for a band like us. And then we did it twice and didn't learn our lessons again. And again, mimes. And I remember this time, cause it was right in the middle of a tour and we'd been on tour for ages. And it was right after we played Hall for Cornwall in Truro. And we'd had this like day off where we were going to go surfing, right? And we were already looking forward to it. And instead we had to drive back to London to do Top of the Pops. <laughs> <laughs> we like, do we have to <laughs> we just want to go surfing it was shit last time why are we doing it again <laughs> do you do you remember anyone else that was on top of the pops when you were there uh no i don't actually the, <laughs> only, the, one, the one thing i remember is I th it was either the first or second time we did it a, a good friend of mine called omar is still a really good friend of mine at the time was working as a camera assistant on children's bbc so he was down there and like he, he knew to play around. And the best thing about that whole thing was that me and him sat in the Blue Peter Garden and smoked a spliff. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that is genius. <laughs> wow. Uh, okay. So <laughs> um, should, we, uh, should we play a song that you, uh, you played live on Top of the Pops? It would yeah. have been one of, the, one of the big singles. Which, uh, which one it would you like I to choose? It was If I Could or Silver. Uh, put If I Could on. Okay. Here's If I Could by 100 Reasons. And so an another big kind of career highlight, I would assume, is Main Stage Reading Festival. Yeah. How how was that? You did it two, um, twice, didn't you? We did it twice. Yeah, we did it once... They were, yeah, they were both kind of different experiences. Once was like very much felt like the glory run where like we were just kind of flying at that time. Um, was that 2003 or two? 2002, one of those. Um, you know, it was after the first record, um, everything was going well and it was awesome. Even like, uh, so that first time we played Reading, the most memorable thing about it was um, about halfway through the set, someone chucked an egg at the stage you know like like just standard festival as you do. shenanigans as you do but this egg was like ended up being this this perfect shot it hit it hit the power connection going to my pedal board which is like you know at least twisty on like waterproof supposedly thing but it was waterproof but apparently not egg proof because <laughs> the egg hit it and, and it sh and it shorted something out and tripped the power on 
on my side of the stage, which was me and the bass rig. So that's, you know, a lot of the sound of the band disappears <laughs> straight away. <laughs> right, sort of instantly turn us into the white stripe. Um, and they couldn't get it going for so long because the stage electrician was having his lunch. So <laughs> we stood there for like five minutes, not able to play a song on Reading main stage, waiting for this guy to come back, which on paper kind of sucked, but Colin like really pulled one out of the bag and just started getting the crowd to make human pyramids. So all these human pyramids were springing up everywhere and then falling over. Yeah. Um, so, and actually when we restarted after that delay, we'd have to, we had to drop a song or two and we restarted with Silver, which was uh, which was out at the time, I guess. And uh, that was a really good moment when it all came back. So in a way, it kind of did us a favour. At least gave something for people to, 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 something for people to talk about. Um, the second time was after we had been dropped by Sony. Very soon after we'd been dropped by Sony. Um, so what do I remember about that? We that was it was actually a really good set. We were higher up on the stage than we were the time before we played like we were sort of the last British band before the American arena size band started playing um, so we had a backdrop made which was like a newspaper classified advert it just said for sale 100 reasons one careless owner <laughs> and, a, and a phone number <laughs> which was for a prepaid phone we had backstage which, like, which then just got rinsed like everyone was phoning it um, but yeah playing Reading Rain stage is kind of it's kind of insane when that's not the norm for you to be playing in front of that many people. So you just can't really see the back of the crowd. And um, especially playing the second time we were later on the day. And a couple of hours makes a big difference to how many people are in that field. And it just looked, you're just like a lot of people, um, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I, um, I can't believe that that phone number was actually real. <laughs> It was. Yeah, it was a prepaid phone, but I think we, you know, we gave up on it eventually because it was just like people were just sending fucking swear words out and stuff. So we binned it. You know, but it was funny for a bit. <laughs> love it. Love it. Um, and I, I read um, that you only ever played one show in the States. Is that true? Yeah, we played South by Southwest once. That was it. Okay. Uh, did by you. The darkness. Oh, nice. <laughs> really? Wow. <laughs> did, did you ever have plans to kind of try and break the band over there or it just kind of didn't work out or you weren't bothered? Well, we, we had plans, certainly, but the record label did not have plans to break us over right. there. So we, we signed a worldwide deal with Sony, which means they own us all over the world. Mm. Um, they decided to not work us as an international artist, so they didn't release our albums in America. Um, and because we're signed to them worldwide, we were unable to get them released by anybody else. Ah, wow. And they wouldn't even let us okay. license it. So, and they just weren't interested in us as an international act. They had two rock bands. Columbia had two rock bands in the UK, uh, us and Lost Profits, and Lost Profits got pushed internationally, and we didn't, which, you know, commercially makes sense. They're a more commercial band. But um, them sort of sitting on us and not allowing us to release anything anywhere, especially in America, was... Um, yeah, pretty catastrophic to us ever doing anything over there. And did and that not, cause? Really about it. Yeah, it was did that cause friction between you and the label? Or? Yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I assume it would. But... Fucking hate them. <laughs> I think that feels like such a sort of um, a 
like a 1970s situation being stuck in one territory when now in 2021 you have Spotify and streaming and the internet and everything. Yeah, it was de- it was definitely a pre-streaming thing, but you know that that was just, early noughties is still a pre-streaming time, so right. you know you're still reliant on the physical release and of the individual territories working your record, and you know there were still people going out around record shops and selling records to record shops. You know it still had that going on at that time, um, you know local reps or whatever, um, and you know there's there's definitely a 80s 90s early noughties technique for record labels if you sign one rock band just sign the other three of their competitions and sit on them right <laughs> okay <laughs> and remove them from the equation yeah. oh, I see. record labels are that cynical right that's interesting because i think like we like what we something we talk about in the podcast a lot is like local scenes um yeah. because that feels like something that doesn't exist so much now because of the nature of the internet and people fight. Or, or would you think, yeah. or is, is that I your experience? I don't really know about that. I mean, I, I, I don't really have much contact with local scenes and sure. young people in grassroots music. I just don't, you know. So, I mean, I hope that still goes on. I hope people are still going to gigs and with their mates and making bands with their mates and doing all that stuff. And I'm sure it does. You know, it might mm. not be with rock music, but I'm sure it does for, for all sorts of things, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, so myself and James came along to your anniversary shows back in 2012, I think it was. Um, yeah, yeah. How how did it feel as a band to see you know sold out shows, such a positive reaction to the to the album after so long? Uh, it was pretty mind blowing to be honest. Like we, when we were planning those shows, we were we were like you know obviously you start having a conversation between us and the Asian about like what size do we go for you know what do we think we're worth all the rest of it and it's a very very difficult thing to to get right and we obviously we actually we didn't get it right we underegged it so you know we were thinking right we'll put the forum on sale it's two and a half thousand people or two four whatever it is um you know we'll put it on sale give it a good eight months and Mm -hmm. you know we have to have the balcony shut and so be it you know what I mean? Like, like that, that yeah. was literally where our minds were with it. It's like, we, yep. we'll just let it creep up. It sold out in 20 minutes. You know what I mean? So, wow. Like, and, and that morning, none of us were even particularly keeping an eye on it. Like, it went on sale that morning. But it's not like we're there going, waiting for the numbers. We're just like, oh, it's on sure. sale. We did, didn't, didn't feel like that kind of thing where it was like a big fucking drop, you know? <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> and, it, and it just like went immediately. And there were people on sort of social, like Twitter or whatever at the time saying they can't get tickets, they can't get tickets. And I remember we were, we were texting each other being like, can't sold out. It can't have sold out. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and it absolutely can. <laughs> um, so that was obviously a wonderful feeling. And then we were scrabbling about trying to upgrade it. We were like, fuck, we, we've underegged it. Right, let's put right. bricks together. Um, right. Nothing was available. It was in, I think it was in November, the show is like the busiest time of year. Everything was already booked up. So... So how come we ended up doing the second night, the Coronet, a couple of nights before? It's literally the only room we could get. <laughs> wow. Okay. Because <laughs> um, I think we were at the Forum, right, Matt? Yeah, yeah the Forum was actually yeah. the last one. And then we did, we yeah. did the second one, which was actually earlier, the Coronet on the, like, the Friday night, I think, or wherever it was. Wow. Um, and then we did Manchester in between. And Manchester had started at the Academy 2. That sold out immediately. And then we went up to the Academy 1, and that sold out as well. Wow. Um, I think we did, we did 2,600 tickets in Manchester, which is more tickets than we did there when silver was out like we, that show was bigger than any show we'd ever done in manchester before um so yeah that was that was an incredible feeling you know 
because it's like the the exact opposite of what we thought was going to happen in a good way yeah <laughs> and, when, and when that kind of happens i'm really because obviously i mean the bands that we listen to and enjoy and stuff there's a lot of kind of reunions and anniversary tours and all that sort of stuff um yeah when that happens and you get that kind of sold out in 20 minutes are you guys kind of having conversations about oh maybe we could get the band together permanently or is that just not on the on the radar what was the situation there? Um, that is that those conversations do happen definitely um i am always the one that says no to it okay <laughs> not, always. not always but i'm like i don't want i don't want to be doing it all the time because i think i think it devalues it okay um so I want to, if and when we ever do stuff, I want it to be for the right reasons and when it really makes sense to do it, not just because I'm bored and I want to go play slam dunk or something. Do you know what I mean? Like, like it, sure. to me, it's always like, I, I, don't, I don't think that we're going to be an ongoing band that creates into our old age. Do you know what I mean? Because mm. we're not, we, we all moved on from it. So I know that it is mostly nostalgia and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but there's only so much that's worth and if you do it too often then you just enter a, another steady decline like the first time we were doing it which is not something i have any interest in so mm. i'm i'm very careful about for me what i agree to do and what i don't agree to do that's fair enough uh, um yeah. do you still get offers that. do you still get offers now from festivals and things yeah yeah I mean, every now and again for sure yeah yeah nice um okay uh It'd be nice to uh, finish with or finish this section before James starts asking you uh, nerdy questions about music production. Um, <laughs> My favourite questions. Yeah, yeah. But, um, so uh, we'll, we'll finish with one more kind of hundred reasons song. What, what was your your favourite one to play live? Uh, that's a damn good question. Oh, I tell you what, there's a track. It just wasn't even a single or anything. It was a track of our second record called Stories with Unhappy Endings that was always really fun to play live. I used to get the SG out and tune it to a weird CFCFCF tuning. And it's just nice. like, it's just monster riffs. Play that nice. one. Nice. Cool. Here it is. <laughs> um, okay. So I... I was trying to verify this this morning and I could yeah. not find it, but I have, I on one of the singles, I think you wrote the liner notes. And I have a feeling it was like yeah. 250 words about amp heads. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I was trying to find it this morning, couldn't find it. So I don't know if I've made this up. But as I, a, don't think, remember, I don't think that did happen. <laughs> I do. I do remember a band that did do that. It's like this weird three-piece prog band called the Fucking Champ. So if you remember, okay, them. okay, and no, they, but that they, sounds and good. They, and they used to list like where it says what they all did. They used to like right. individually list all their guitars and all their equipment down to what like valves they had in the app. So I remember reading <laughs> no. that, and, like, and I remember reading that and being like. That's kind of cool. Well, it obviously isn't cool, but thinking that's kind of funny. <laughs> so it's possible that maybe I did something like that at some point, but I don't know if I don't know if it was single or not. But... <laughs> well, that's my memory, and I remember right. thinking at the time, like 
this is super unusual <laughs> because yeah. it felt like because I think um, certainly the bands that I were into were all like well punk bands and sort of like being into gear and the detail of vintage gear and things like that was an unusual yeah. thing to be into because it was much more sort of DIY and having fun but looking back on it now and then finding out later in life that you got into producing that then yeah. seems like a logical progression yeah um, <laughs> and I was I was listening to another interview you did and you said you started producing at 14, is that right? Well, started producing at 14 is maybe a little bit of a grand term for what actually okay. happened. I produced my first song at 14. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, well, that was my first production job. So um, when I was that age, um, I was growing up near Kingston and we, um, all my mates who were into music used to go to a youth club in Twickenham called Heatham House which had a recording studio of sorts in it like it wow. was an eight, eight an eight track like one of those little Fostex quarter inch eight tracks and a soundcraft desk and a couple of drama compressors I mean like like the, the most basic gear but enough stuff to to record a band with you know sure um so we used to start going down there and we were recording each other's bands and they had a school hall where we used to put on shows once a month and like hundreds of kids would turn up because there's fuck all else to do, right? When you're that right. age and you yeah, go exactly. in there and like get pissed in the bushes and whatever. But, <laughs> and it, you know, because they were pretty cool around the place. I mean, they played, they, they, they turned a certain blind eye to what was going on. So it was just like a cool sure. place to hang out. These gigs were getting like four or 500 people coming down to them. Some, wow. some you know, when it was at its busiest. Um, so one of the bands that, um, was down there was a punk band called the walking abortions who nice who <laughs> my secondary school as well and there were three beats and they were awesome right they were really really good and they um um they managed to get like a single deal with the record label damaged goods okay right and which is a punk label and they recorded four songs, three songs with me at Heatham House, and that was released by Damaged Goods as a seven inch vinyl. Okay. So, and we were about 14 at the time, and they paid, they paid me with a packet of Marlboro Lights that was <laughs> for, for, the, for the recording. <laughs> so yeah, that was my first production. I mean, I, I, whether I've been producing since then is maybe, is maybe one thing, but that was, that was like, the first production job where something got released by a record label wow. <laughs> on seven inch, <laughs> and that was fourteen at the time. <laughs> Maybe even younger, like Ed was, I think Ed, the, the singer slash drummer of that band, was like thirteen. Do you know what I mean? I think I, I, I was older than the band. It was just like a bunch of kids, and suddenly this thing was being released, which was kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, what, what an amazing experience to have at that age, though, right? In terms of like yeah, a confidence booster and a... no, no, I was definitely, we were sure. definitely also at secondary school. You know. <laughs> okay. And then, when do you think you sort of thought this was like a like a thing that you wanted to do um, professionally? Well, kind of from that moment, I'd say. So then okay. we were doing, but when we were doing the band, and um, we worked with a guy called John Hannon, who's sadly passed away very recently, um, who was in a band called Understand, who um, were also managed by Tank. Um, so we used to work with him a lot and, you know, he was, I'd, then I, that was the, my first experience of working with a producer 
that right. knew what they were doing and like being directed by someone as opposed to just sort of hitting record like someone like seeing somebody control a session and um control the outcome or get into the outcome and helping you through it um and then um i guess throughout like leading up to that i would still record stuff at, at heathen house and you know you learn quite a lot just learning to record on an eight track you learn quite a lot about sure bouncing tracks and about how things are done and decision making which i which i quite like um and then once we were signed we went to do two albums with dave sardi who's you know an a-list now an a-list hollywood producer um you know i think the first when we went to do the first record here we just finished the first jet album with like do you want to be my girl and stuff like that like he was doing like you know proper records and that was the first time i've seen like something like that someone at the highest level working as a producer which was pretty awesome so then i was really hooked into it um but yeah it's but it's obviously something you can't really do whilst the band's going on you know because sure. we were just too busy playing but it's always something i wanted to get into um so yeah i guess since then it's always been uh, the ultimate goal of mine like it got to a point where i was like i want to do that more than i want to be in a band now yeah, you know what I mean? yeah, and okay. me being reticent about ever doing 100 reasons stuff, it's like I'm really happy doing this. Like, if I'm gonna be in a band, again, it's gonna have to be like there's gonna have to be a damn good reason for it. <laughs> it's like, kind of like, yeah. this is better fun to me, <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, um, so what was kind of like the first because I was trying to, I was going through your kind of your discography and through the yeah. um, your showreel, um, which mm. uh, for people listening, if you search Larry Hibbert showreel, you get that on Spotify. Um, and the oldest song on there, I think, is from 2018. Yeah. What was kind of like the, f- what was the first like album that you would say was like your, um, like the first record you really did sort of start to finish or, or, or from the inception? Um, let's think about this. There, there is, there is earlier stuff than that. I just, I try and keep that relatively recent, obviously, sure. you know, getting work reasons, but, um, uh, the first album I produced was a band called Miles from Compilation. Okay. And I'm yep. probably think this is probably when the hell was that? It's probably on Spotify still. That was on Re- Hassle Records, Wes's oh, yeah. label. Um, and that was an album called Actions, and that was probably pre 2010. Okay. I'd say. And that that was the first album I've been asked to produce from start to finish. And then around that time, I produced the third hundred, third and fourth hundred reasons records. Right. So in between that, uh, then what else did I do around there? I did an album with Raging Speedhorn. Okay. I did an album with Cap Down. Um, oh, amazing! I did. Yeah. So there are a few bits I did, like, like none of, none of them really did much, to be honest. But those are the first sort of few records I, I did. I mean, I love that Cap Down record, but you know, pe- people that. It, people just wanted them to play Scar Wars, didn't they? So it was just come and they did like really weird, moody, heavy record. I'm not sure it was that well received by their fan base, <laughs> but you know, I thought it was cool. <laughs> and so is there they. a um, is there a song from that record we could play? No, you're talking. Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> um, I, I will actually have to look it up on Spotify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. Remember what's even on there, even if it is on Spotify. Uh, so, uh, um, that. oh, I don't know if it is. There's one, two, three, four records, I think, on Spotify. 
Wind Up Toys. That's what it's oh, called. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's on there. 2007. Yeah. That's it. I mean, play whichever one you want of that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so just let's let's play let's play the second song because I think that's got the most plays. Why not? A eh? which is Blood, Sweat, and Fears. Fears, play that. Okay, so um, so your bio kind of says like writer producer. Yeah. How how is your like what's kind of like your creative process with a band? Do 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 you? Because I've seen so during lockdown, I got lost into YouTuber producer YouTuber <laughs> as a, as, yeah. as a tunnel. We all, we all get and lost in that stuff. Yeah, 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 right. And it's so interesting seeing different people with different processes. Some producers liking to get the artist in a room and just creating straight away. Other producers, they're bringing in demos and then just working from those demos and making them sound good. What would you yeah. say your kind of process is like? Um, the, the longer I do this and the longer in the tooth I get with it, the less I try and force anybody into a particular way of working. So okay. it's, kind of it's kind of different to, with every person or artist I work with because those bands all work differently and you can't really expect them all to do the same thing. Sure. Um, you know, some bands, some bands are more collaborative and you're dealing with four creative people. Some of them you're, and this is more common to be honest, you're dealing with one person that's the creative force behind the band and the other guys are just the guys in the band, you know? Right. So, um, it really does depend on what works for every individual. And I, I mean, maybe that's a production technique is just tailoring what I do. I get. I gave up. Like I gave up a few years ago of trying to like force people, force and even myself just into one way of working. Do you know what I mean? I think. Okay. I think it pays to be a little bit more chaotic than that, and a little well, not chaotic, <laughs> but you know, you need you need to sort of allow yourself to to fit in with with how a different project works. And there are different people involved in different projects, whether or not it's the band, and there might be a manager that's really involved, there might be an A and really involved, or they might not be. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like every every project has a different way of working. So, and I find that, you know, obviously there are technical things I like to do, and there are things I, ways I like things to sound, and that's kind of a separate thing. But for, but for a workflow for a project, it, that you kind of find that out by working with people and by finding out what works best with them, because ultimately you're just trying to get the best that the that the artist or band has to give you, and you're not always going to get that out of them using the same method every time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I guess that makes that makes sense. Working to the personality of the people that that you're with. Um, I yeah. am. Yeah. I, I'm a huge fan of the Dinosaur Pilot record, Celebrity Mansions, um, yeah. that you did, um, which I absolutely love. I think partly because it talks back to that kind of like late '90s, early noughties sound with the sort of big pop rock. Uh, records but also because of it's it's got such a sense of fun in it with the extra sound yeah. effects like cheerleaders and cassette tapes and all those kind of things and yeah. sirens and all sorts of nonsense that really feels um very playful is that so with dinosaur pilot yeah. i'm assuming you're mainly working with matt or, or yeah. was it a more of a band record no I, like it was it that's just that was just months of me and Matt in a room like and and it's funny you mentioned that well not funny but that that you mentioned that sense of playfulness and that sense of fun throughout that record that was the single hardest thing to get right 
and really? that was what we worked on for the rest of you know the guitars and the drums and everything we we that, those are kind of like yeah th those were the kind of easier side of it right okay. but what was difficult was how many woos are going in this song how many sound <laughs> effects is too much is that a little bit too cheesy like the sure. amount of recalling and different versions of those songs where like like the amount of versions of Backfoot with different amounts of woos going throughout <laughs> it do you know what I mean like was that's that's what all the recalls were so <laughs> right um yeah getting all of that in a perfect spot was what was the difficult thing about that record um and what actually also kind of makes it in the end sure yeah yeah definitely <laughs> but, no I really yeah. hear that yeah um, and like you know like that that can opening that was just me opening a can of fosters into a mic then like compressing the <laughs> fuck out of it and that can go in but you know yeah, that's in flashback yeah it's just yeah that is kind of insane and, and like matt matt is a very like emo has a very emotional response to the music he's making and it has to hit these certain taste points and make him feel a very certain way but he doesn't necessarily know how to articulate that so it can be quite a lot of trial and error to get okay. it in a different way and with him it's it's all about drops and about fun and it's like does the before the chorus drops do we need more silence and does the kick drum and the guitars need to be tighter do you know what i mean so right. picking parts of the production to make superhuman and then other believe messy like it's all of those taste points that are in his head that actually i think on, on records he's made previously where they've been made in a hurry or made in a more traditional way he'd never really had the chance to get right and that okay. was one thing on this that he was allowed the time or I allowed him the time to get those things right and get them to a place where they were making him feel the right way. And then then you listen to it and you're like, okay, now this album feels from start to finish. It feels right. And it's in the right spot. <laughs> you know yeah. What I mean? yeah, I do. He's he was allowed to spend he was allowed to spend three or four months driving himself fucking crazy with all of those <laughs> tiny little details. And I kind of entered. Is that, <laughs> is, is that when you become more of a therapist than a uh, producer? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and is that that? So yeah. that that being allowed that time is that something that happens on on a lot of projects for you now, or is that something that's still a rarity? No, it's not because because sometimes a lot of times you have to get things done you know and part of your job is is delivering things on time so a lot of time i have to push people to make decisions and get them to stick to something and just to get it finished mm. you know but tr trying that with matt doesn't work you know so he just you know and that's that's just tailoring what you do for different people it's like okay you have you have to be i realized that at some point that when he finally got to a point where he was happy with it the track sounded way more amazing if i didn't allow that to happen you know, sure. so that's just what had to happen with everything to make a yeah. really good record with him. <laughs> yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, like um, when I got him painting with him, it didn't work. But that does work with some Some people need a bit of pressure, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Um, is there, do you have a favourite song from that record that we could play? Thrash Metal, thrash metal Cassette, all day. Yeah, Wicked, that's, that's <laughs> also my that favourite. Yeah, me too. Um, so yeah. everyone, here's for the, your listening pleasure, <laughs> Thrash Metal Cassette by Dinosaur Pilot. Um, so the other thing that struck me when I was sort of listening to the show reel is, is that you're, 
your work, I guess, is nowadays has a, there's definitely a pop feel. Is that fair to say with a lot of what you do now? Very fair to say, yeah. Yeah. Do you, and sort of when you were referencing earlier, like like um, Celebrity Mansions as an album, do you, because mm. I know that like a lot of people talk now about that people don't write albums anymore. They're just writing singles sort yeah. of for streaming or to get on playlists. Is that something, and personally, I'm, I'm, I guess, because I'm of a certain age, albums is the thing that I'm always looking for. I'm always looking for a body of work with peaks and troughs to really get yeah. into. It, which are you doing? It, which one of those is in your heads when you're working with somebody, or is it sort of both? Albums still. I mean, I still make albums with bands. Yeah. You know, um, and I don't like. I don't work, even though a lot of music I make sounds commercial. I don't work, tend not to work with straight up pop acts. Sure. It's usually with bands, even if those records are made in a kind of pop way. Um, it's always with a band and it's always with, with an album, generally speaking. Okay. I mean, that might change at some point, but you know, right now I tend to go from album to album, really, which, um, which I much prefer. And I think what you're always looking for, or the perfect thing, is, is an album where any song could, could be released as a single. That's the album that, that I always right. want to make. Okay. You know, which, which involves writing a hell of a lot of songs and involves a hell of a lot of work. But that's always the ideal for me, as many, as many bangers as possible. <laughs> is, there an, is there an album that you've worked on recently where you felt that you really got that? Um, actually... The album I'm finishing right now, which is Seagull's second album. Okay. That I've been working on for most of this year. Um, that is, they're, they're, I'm really proud of their first record, um, but that is not the album where every song is a single, but it was trying to be. I think this one is as close as possible, to, as close as possible to the chance that they have to doing that right now. Um, like Henry in the band works with a lot of co-writers. They're all, all the songs are co-writes. And because the last record did quite well, like charted number three and all the rest of it, the the quality of songwriter he's been in with this time has in, has like he's moved up to a kind of next level of people he's working with. So, okay. so, the, song, so the songs are now really really good, and that's been um, like quite a long, quite an arduous process of selecting those songs. He's written like a hundred songs, and we're getting it down to twelve. <laughs> wow you know, there's a huge playlist of songs and and it's kind of to, to get a record where every song's great like that's how much work you have to do <laughs> okay so, got it yeah so we're getting to the point now where that, that's getting mixed and that this is starting to feel like a really great record um other than that a record i really like to make recently is the first sundara karma album that's not even that recently it's a few years ago now they did an album with an indie rock band, an album called Youth Is Only Ever Fun in Retrospect. And that's probably, that's, I, I was saying this to somebody the other day, it's probably the only record I've produced where I can listen to it without remembering producing it, because I just really like it. <laughs> you know, like even Dinosaur Pileup, I still, I can still remember the process a bit, but with Sundar Akar, I'm just like, oh, this is just cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, amazing. Is there, is there a particular song that you like to listen to from that record that we can play for everyone? Yes, you could play the song Happy Family. That's my favourite. Okay, great. Uh, this is uh, Happily, Happy Family by Sundarama Karma. Sundara Karma. I definitely said it wrong. Yeah. 
<laughs> I guess that makes it not a brilliant name because even when I started working with him, it took me about six months to get it right. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, everyone, um, enjoy the song that I can't pronounce. So I'm trying to think of a, um, I'm looking at my list, I'm trying to think of a good way to wrap up. Have you got a good sort of wrap up question, Mr. Buck? Um, not really, no, you kind of stole it by, uh, with your last question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay. Here's a good one. Um, do you have a bucket list of artists that you'd love to work with in the future? Oh, bloody hell. That is a good question. Um, I I I don't really, um, it's a difficult question. I have been asked this before and I always stumble on it. Maybe I should think of, maybe I should think of some. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'd love to work about- with Trent Reznor because I love a lot of the work he's done. Sure. In, in, in any capacity, that would be amazing. Um, God knows, who else? You know, a lot of, a lot of it is because, you know, I'd, I would have loved to have made a Rage Against the Machine album, but I don't think I want to do that now. I would have wanted to do that back in the day. You know what I mean? Because sure, I reckon right. that would have been really exciting. So there's yes. some of when I think about artists I'd work with, it's like, well, artists in their prime. Like, I would have loved to have recorded Soundgarden in like the early 90s. That would have just been awesome. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> looking to the future, you know, no, you don't think it's going to be any good or not. <laughs> no, of course not. Sorry, mate, you broke up a little bit there. Did I break up? Give you, give you another go. Is there, an, is there a particular style yeah. you'd like to give a go to? Something you've never experienced before, like deathcore or trance or EDM or something very different? Um, I would like to get better at making kind of electronic music or trance I, I, or dance music. It's, it's a complete mystery to me. And um, I would love to... Like even just getting into the technology of it, I think would be good because it would, you know, anything that breaks you out of the rut of what you're doing, of staring at Pro Tools every day and recording guitars, you know, which, which there's only so much you can really do with that. So that would be good. Whether or not I'll ever have the time or the effort or the inclination to do it is, is another thing, but that would be a fun thing to do. <laughs> Other okay. than that, at the moment, I'm, I'm enjoying Like I've done a couple of things recently which have been heavier music. Like I know I did Dinosaur Pie, but I generally make indie records and, but, um, I've been working with a band called Boston Manor recently and we've been doing more, like they're actually, they want to get heavier and we've been doing more like crushing riffs and it's even like heavier than Dinosaur Pilot stuff. And that's been quite good fun to go back to that because that feels to me like sort of going back to stuff that I did when I was a teenager and I just kind of understand it quite innately. So that's that's kind of fun as well sometimes to do stuff that you that you know very well when you've been spending quite a bit of time doing stuff that you know less well, I think. <laughs> um yeah right that amazing can't wait cannot wait to hear that that sounds super exciting <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um so that's i think that's us thank you so much for your time this has been a real pleasure okay, great. great yeah thank you so much so i hope, hope i didn't ramble too much no not at all that was um love this was really enjoyable and a great memory lane for um two kids from guildford interviewing our favorite band from when we were (laughs) 18 19 so it's real real pleasure for us thank you so much thank you larry awesome thank you very much for having me that was our lovely chat with larry from 100 reasons i really enjoyed that yeah great time really good Yeah. yeah really good fun nice uh nice trip down down memory lane um as always thanks for listening uh get in contact with us 
on the Instagram. It's Emo Dad Podcast. Make sure you tell all your friends and share everything that we're doing. Um, and we are going to finish with Falter by 100 Reasons. See you later. <laughs>